0: Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to season two of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome to another Good Conversation in our Common Ground Unity podcast. I'm Kevin Witham, and I'm glad to be back with you today for another uh, dialogue and discussion uh, related to rebuilding, tearing down, building up. We're in a series based in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 at verse 3, and we have another great guest today. But I'm here with my co-host, Tina Bruner. Tina, how are you? Folks may not No, but I'm sitting out here on the West Coast and you're out in the eastern part of the country. How are things with you today and out your way?
1: Everything is good. It's hot and humid in Kentucky, so I am jealous of your good weather in California.
0: All right. Well, I won't talk about it too much and Uh and brag about it. Well, good to be (laughs) back with you, Tina. We have a great guest with us today that we've looked forward to being with. And our last guest, Rubel Shelley, you might remember at the last part of our podcast last week had such wonderful things to say about John Mark. John Mark Hicks is with us today. He is a name known to many of you who have read his books or maybe taken his classes or heard him lecture. Uh, He is a professor of theology at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. He received his Bachelor's of Arts in Bible from Freed Hardeman University, his uh, Master's of Arts in Religion and Theological Studies from Westminster Theological Seminary, an M.A. in Humanities from Western Kentucky University, and his Ph.D. in Reformation and Post-Reformation Studies from Westminster Theological Seminary. So he's a little undereducated for our uh, conversation today. Just joking with you there, John Mark, but uh, uh, he's been teaching for years. He's taught for more than 40 years in schools associated with Churches of Christ. He's published 15 books and lectured in 20 countries and 40 states. He's married to Jennifer, and they share six children and six grandchildren. Um, but before I have John Mark make a couple of comments, I, I want to just mention that um, he has—he's not only a popular author with several, um, I think, very pertinent books out right now, presently that are, are being read and discussed by many. But he's also got some other resources I want to mention at the top of our podcast. Uh, because as you as you listen to Mark and and listen to this or John Mark and and listen to this discussion, you, you're going to want to uh, read some of his other materials. If this is your first introduction to him, you can go to JohnMarkHicks.com. That's JohnMarkHicks.com, and he's got a lot of blog posts, articles there, good academic work uh, related to Scripture. He's also got several classes. Uh, on the Wineskins uh, YouTube channel that Matt Dabbs done. Matt's been with us, and uh, we've talked about Wineskins. But if you go to Wineskins on YouTube, uh, John Mark has a terrific class on 2 Corinthians uh, that you would be blessed by. You might even choose to use it in your church as a class. Uh, his, his Theodrama in five acts, looking at the whole narrative of Scripture is there. So we'd encourage you to, uh, to go there. But we're going to be talking about a book, Uh, that he's recently released uh, that's entitled, Searching for the Pattern, My Journey in Interpreting the Bible. And we would suggest that this is perhaps one of the the most important books to be reading at this time. It's crucial, I believe, in helping us to see a hermeneutic that is consistent with the way the Bible is written and that is true to our heritage of people wanting to be Christ-centered and biblical in our approach to the life of the church. And what he does in the book is he moves his readers through his own journey as one uh, who started out reading and interpreting the Bible from a blueprint, or what you might have grown up with, as I did, a command example and necessary inference lens, uh, to what he calls a theological blueprint. Um, so for those that have been on that journey themselves, you're going to identify perhaps with, in, 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 big ways with what John Mark has written. And if you are still interpreting scripture, if you're at a place where you read it from a kind of patternistic blueprint, um, interpretive framework, I'd encourage you to consider picking up a copy of this book and, and considering, uh, John Mark's approach to the theological blueprint that he described. So, Tina, I'm going to throw it over to you. John Mark, welcome. We're, we're glad to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us.
2: Well, I'm very happy to be here. I'm grateful for the opportunity, and it is good to see you both, and looking forward to the conversation.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about this too. And a few people that our listeners might be familiar with had these things to say about this book. Wes McAdams wrote, I pray this book is received with open minds because I believe this work could go a long way in helping to bring unity to our fractured fellowship. Jamie Gorman wrote that this excellent book helps us understand the inner workings of Bible interpretation among churches of Christ and provides a persuasive proposal for biblical The Bible interpretation that is built on the story of God we find in Scripture, a story into which God calls us. And I really did love so much of how um, John Mark, there's so much story language in in this book. Tiffany Dahlman writes, Finally, a trellis across the chasm. Throughout this book, Hicks does not compromise his high regard for both the church and the Scripture. And through the grace found therein, he Composes this urgent invitation back to the table, where obedience cooperates with mystery, and we estranged or conflicted can find our place as one within God's magnificent story. John Mark, can you give us an overview of why you wrote this book, maybe who you thought your audience was? and and define some of the major terms um, that that are within within this work?
2: Well, yes, thank you. Uh, it's a good question to begin with. Um, I wrote it for those who love the Bible, love the church, love God. And um, I had taught this subject, theological hermeneutics, as a class for almost 30 years. And the consistent need in that class was a book that we could hand to someone who sits in the pew at our church. Or a, a church leader who who operates in that in a traditional mode, who operates in a particular way of reading the Bible that they grew up with, just as I grew up with it, uh, they absorbed it just as I absorbed it, and with this with the problems that that come with that, right? So, if we want to move away from that, if there's something problematic about that, if there's something uh, disruptive about that, even or something inconsistent with how Scripture comes to us, how do we move away from that? How do we move into something different? So I always got this question, and it was a question that comes from the critics as well. Uh, well, what's going to replace it? You know, what, what, what? Do you, how do you read the Bible then? If you don't read it this way, the way I grew up reading it, and how do you read it? And so I was looking for a, a, a book or a series of articles or something that I thought would be uh, accessible to those who are sitting, uh, you know, raising their families, leading churches, teaching Bible classes, and but they only know this world. They only know this way of doing it. Is there something that could reach them? Is there something that could? Um, provide a a, a bridge, you might say, toward a different way of reading the Bible, Um, one perhaps more faithful to the sort of thing the Bible is. That's why I wrote it. I I wrote it because I wanted to provide something accessible, but I didn't want it coming from someone who was um, critical of the church, someone who was bitter toward the church, or someone who didn't appreciate what that old method gave us, um, even though we might critique it. I wanted to, uh, to speak in love. I wanted to speak in gratitude. And hopefully that comes across in the book, but I appreciate my heritage. I love my people. I love this community, the Restoration Movement, the Stone Campbell Movement, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And I didn't want to come across bitter because I'm not bitter. Uh, I just think there is a way of reading the Bible that's more faithful to the sort of thing the Bible is. And so that's kind of why I wrote this, to provide something that you could hand to someone who doesn't have a theological education, who doesn't have a master of divinity, who hasn't been to school, just something that. They could track their own journey with mine, that their journey is my journey. Or maybe they are uh, in a place where they're wondering and doubting and confused. And how does this work? And here's a book that maybe can help them walk that journey to a a more secure place, a more um, Christ-centered place, Mm -hmm. a story-centered place. And that's why I wrote the book in the way I did.
1: It struck me that uh, for the people who might say, why do we need to interpret the Bible? Or doesn't the Bible speak for itself? Or if the Bible says it, just do it kind yeah. of thing. I have thought a lot about that as I read through this as a great tool for people like that. Did did those people, like, was that kind of in your mind as well for folks oh, like for that?
2: Oh, sh- for sure. Um, you know, that was the way in which I read the Bible growing up. I uh, I learned to read it and do it, right? It's kind of a one-to-one correspondence. You read it and you do it. It's like the old Texas two-step, right? You just, you just make two steps. You read it and then you do it. But the problem is no one ever does that. Uh, we always read and then we decide what to do. We read women wore veils or head coverings of some sort and we decide what to do. We read that um, uh, women uh, widows were not supposed to be supported under 60. Well, do we, we still do that? I mean, is that, is that still a rule that we, that, that we use in our churches? If you're under 60, we can't help you. Uh, no. So we are always engaged in a middle step. And that's what hermeneutics is. Hermeneutics is that middle step where we go through a process of discernment. In order to understand how God is shaping us, or how God calls us into God's story, what the, to discern the will of God uh, in Christ. So, hermeneutics is the middle step that we everybody does it. We're just not necessarily conscious of it. Uh, and when we just do the two-step sort of thing, what we do, what we have, what we're in danger of is reproducing first-century culture. Not in reproducing the mystery of Christ, but in reproducing first century culture. And we do this in everything. I mean, we could talk about examples later, but um, take, for instance, the Lord's Supper. We make decisions about the Lord's Supper. Discern. Does it have to be in an upper room? Well, no, that's, that's circumstantial. Does it have to be at night? Well, no, that's circumstantial. Does it have to be one cup? Well, some say, well, yeah, yeah, it does. And others say, "Well, no, it doesn't. You know, does it have to be leavened bread or unleavened bread? Does it have to be wine, or can it be grape juice?" We make decisions, and that's um, those decisions are are the substance of a hermeneutical process, or they're the uh, they're the result of a hermeneutical process by which we decide.
0: Yeah, God is calling us to do this. Uh, John, Mark, those two goals that you mentioned about really wanting your love for the church and scripture to come across does so well in what you've written. And I think that makes, and it made for me reading it, you know, appreciate what you're saying all the more. I love the spirit with which you write. And, you know, I, ironically, I I grew up in a tradition that said we don't interpret the Bible. And if you said hermeneutics, you know, I'd probably would have said in my teenage years, you know, Herman, who uh, is the question we'd ask. Um, but, but we really did interpret, and we had these terms like command, example, and necessary inference, SENI, and we used terms we'd refer to the pattern, which is in the title of your book. Um, you discuss in this book, then, the difference between ways we actually do interpret, because we do often with a, a blueprint hermeneutic, and and the difference in that and a theological Hermeneutic. So help us to understand these concepts better, and why why this is so important in learning how to read the Bible as God intends.
2: Well, my language uh, hope hopefully is um, helpful. I, there's other language one could use, I suppose. Um, but when I say blueprint hermeneutic or a blueprint pattern, what I'm talking about is the search for data in the Bible out of which to construct a pattern that is not explicitly there, but one that we can um, produce in the present and, and imitate. So, for example, there is no explicit pattern for how to do, when to do the Lord's Supper or how to do the Lord's Supper. Uh, there are particulars we can argue about, yeah. And there's no explicit pattern for uh, a list of things to do in the assembly. There's no list. There's no pattern explicit. So what the blueprint pattern attempts to do is, and they expect God to supply this. They they come we come to the text, and God is going to tell us how to do this. Because uh, if we worship God in a way that God doesn't tell us how to do it, that then that's that's um, a problem for us, so we expect God to tell us how to do it. So we search through the text, we gather the data like a field of stones. We go out into the field and we collect the stones, and then we go and we build a temple. We construct a pattern. The pattern is not there explicitly, but we construct it so that we know how to do things that are pleasing to God, and so that that approaches the Bible like. Um, Uh, a lot of pieces of data that we need to organize and put into the right order. In fact, that language is used in our history. We're going to put it in the right order, or we're going to read between the lines and we're going to infer. That's where that necessary inference stuff comes from. We're going to infer the new truth. It's like when you're building a temple and you only have, you need 40 stones and you only got 35, then you just, infer the other five, right? You fill in the gaps with the inferences so that you get the complete pattern. So that's kind of what I mean when I'm saying a blueprint pattern. When I say theological pattern, I want to use the metaphor more that instead of building a temple, what we're doing is we are exploring the temple in order to live within the temple. That the theological pattern is the action, the mighty acts of God, the work of God, the story of God, and that we enter into that story, we enter into the temple of God's story, and we explore it, and we imbibe it, and we imitate it, and the focus is on what God is doing rather than on what the church is doing. See, the the blueprint pattern, you're looking for what the church did. Oh, church did that? Oh, we're going to do that too. Uh, the church was commanded to do that, oh, we're going to do that too. Or the church gives us an example of doing that, we're going to do that too. I think that that's the wrong focus. It seems to me the focus is more theos, theo, theological. That is, the pattern of activity is what God is doing, not what the church is doing. And so the blueprint looks for what the church is doing, what the church is commanded to do, or what the church exemplifies, or the inferences about the church, I'm looking, I think a theological method is more looking at what's God doing? How is God acting? Uh, and how is God transforming? And, and that becomes the center. Uh, so it becomes a difference between constructing a pattern out of the uh, data that we construct a blueprint to follow, or is it we enter into the story of God to become like God, to image God? And that's the fundamental difference, it seems to me.
0: So if if somebody listening to this is wondering, what what then do we do with these common pieces we tend to see in, in the New Testament, for example? We're wanting to set up the governance of our church. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we how do we find then Without a pattern approach in some facet, you know, a model, how how do we use the, the theological um, interpretive model as opposed to the patternistic to, you know, set some order in and say we're planting a new church or in our congregations?
2: Yeah, yeah I, I think God is not the God of confusion, right? God is the God of order. So we, we definitely want order. Uh, because this is God creating the world, ordering out of chaos. Uh, I think we look to the ministry of Jesus. We look to, well, I mean, I can go through a lot of things here, but we can look at how Israel, how leadership worked in Israel. We can look at how leadership works in the ministry of Jesus, how leadership imitated Jesus in the early church. And I think we're looking for the theological um, resource of what leadership means, that it's Leadership that washes feet—that it's leadership that um, calls us into a, a life in conformity with who God is, and that that leadership is shared leadership. Uh, that it's a discipling leadership. So, you know, I'd want to go down that theological line, and then we do look at we do look at examples, and we do look at how the early church functions, and what we can learn from that. How did the early churches um, um, work, and how it lived together? How did that illustrate? How did it embody the leadership principles of who God is? As God is a shepherd, Christ is a shepherd. How does that? How is that embodied uh, in the life of the church? So, I would want to go down that line as well. The the point would be though that. Um, the center of our discussion is about God's identity and how we imitate God, rather than the center being, um, oh, uh, elders were appointed in Acts by a vote, so that's what we have to do. Uh, No, I don't think that that's necessarily a one-to-one correspondence there.
1: It seems like it makes us more comfortable when we lean on it as if it is. So it helps us include the people we want to include, include the things we want included, and exclude other things. So I love how you're saying, yeah, look at the specific things in scripture, but also look at the model of leadership. Look at the, in this example, you know, the way to uh, lead the church. Like not only look at these specific verses that say, you know the elders were appointed but also look at how who Jesus included and what what his ministry looked like it, yeah. why, why do you think that's so hard for us to expand our interpretation
2: well as all human beings we love security right <laughs> we want to be comfortable and we want to be sure so we we want something that's clear uh, and, and the um, irony is that the traditional way of reading this reading scripture through this blueprint lens has created all sorts of division. It hasn't been clear uh, that has been the source of division, even going back to Reformed theology in the 1500s, you know, in the Reformation. This approach to the Bible, this kind of blueprint approach to the Bible has created opportunities for division because it wasn't as clear as we thought it was. I mean, you thought it was clear, but I didn't think it was clear. You thought it was clear. I didn't think. You know, So we got into a, a fight about that. Uh, so it's not as clear as we thought. Um, but our security, you know, we, we want to find our security in our obedience. And so we got to know what the right thing to do is, right? And, and so if we want to be sure we're going to be saved, then we need to know what the right thing is and, and, and obey that and do it. Instead of finding our assurance in the story of God in Christ by the Spirit, reconciling the world to God's self, instead of finding our assurance in a kind of a Christocentric sort of way, we find our assurance in finding the right pattern. We we, we find the right blueprint with all the right details in the blueprint so that we have the right church, doing the right plan of salvation, doing the right church organization, doing the right Lord's Supper, you know, that... And and that becomes our security. So if you disrupt the pattern, blueprint pattern methodology, it, it creates uncertainty. It dis, it's it's a it's a discomforting sort of thing. But hopefully it's an opportunity to, to kind of pivot and reorient ourselves to say, Whoa, 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 finding our security there was always the wrong place, anyway. We need to find our security in the story of God in Christ.
0: I, uh, I love what you said that this takes us back really to the heart of God and his intent, rather than reducing the Bible to just a, uh, a series of patterns to get right so that somehow that makes us right with God. Hmm. Um, Wes McAdams in one of his comments, his endorsement about the book said, I believe this work would go a long way in helping to bring unity to our fractured fellowship. Um, you know, somebody out there might say, wow, if we read the Bible this way, our churches all won't look exactly alike, and maybe that's something we used to take security in. What, what do you think of Wes's statement there, and, you know, how—do you see this as—and as, uh, not that our job's to be faithful to a movement, but how do you see this perhaps as even more faithful to the restoration plea and, and the, the place of the Bible in our movement? And how does it does it achieve in your mind, and in what ways? What Wes mentions in his endorsement—the the the bringing together in unity in better ways our fractured fellowship.
2: Well, well, unity is always a difficult thing, anyway. I mean, the human emotions, the human preferences, the human commitments—you know, our convictions. Unity is a tough thing, and that's why common ground is. Exists right to try to promote that unity because it is a matter of communal sanctification. It's a matter of being sanctified as a community so that we can live together and love each other and work together. In what way would a theological hermeneutic, a way of reading scripture, a theological pattern uh, help with that unity? Well, I, th- I think it comes back to what I just mentioned a moment ago that uh, that we find our center in who God is and what God is doing and in Christ and how God is present among us in the Spirit uh, to form us and transform us into the image of Christ. And it is that confession that unites us. It's not, are we in the right church? If, we're, if we confess the, the story of God in Christ, yeah, we're in the right church because to confess the story of God in Christ is for God to add us to that church, right? To be a part of that body. Now, in our sanctification, we want to become more and more like Christ in every way, including how we do the Lord's Supper, you know, and including how we might organize our communities. So we want to move along that path toward uh, fully embodying the gospel of Christ. But that's that's a process of sanctification. You're not going to find unity in sanctification because everybody's at a different place. Everybody's at a different moment in their sanctification before the Lord. Uh, That's a process. It's a process we never perfect. It's a process we never come to an end on. We are always in process. So if we're going to find our unity there, we're going to be a fractured people uh, de facto, right? But if we find our unity in the common confession of the gospel, God at work in Christ by the Spirit, then I think, yeah, yeah we can move we can at least live together with our differences because we have a fundamental sameness we have a fundamental common ground we have a fundamental conviction about god at work in christ and i think that is what a theological hermeneutic emphasizes that's that's what its point is is to discover the story of god to discern the will of god in the story of god by virtue of how God has acted and what God is doing and how God is transforming us and in Christ by the Spirit. So I think Wes is right that it has potential to um to reorient us, to refocus us, so that we're not majoring in minors. Instead, we are saying what Jesus said, you know, love God, and love your neighbor is more important. Well, this was actually the the scribe who was questioning him, but Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom when he said this, right? Love God and love your neighbor is more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Uh, we got to learn the major in the majors, in the main thing, rather than minor in the min- min- uh, the minority things, the small things. And I think the, the tendency I don't think it's necessary, but it's a tendency that goes back to the 1500s. It's a tendency in the blueprint method to focus on the little things, to focus on the minor things. Uh, It just orients us that way because we want to find the details. We want to get it right. We want to make sure it's all coherent, that it's consistent, and ultimately, we have a whole history of division that arises out of that. No one could see it the same way.
1: How has your perspective about doctrine and practice changed as you embrace and adopted a theology or narrative based on reading of Scripture as opposed to the blueprint?
2: Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, you know, in a blueprint model, and I'm just speaking my own experience here. I don't want to impose this on somebody else. I'm, I'm just talking out of my own experience. But my sense of, of the blueprint, the methodology, was, okay, I just got to find the command and obey it. And it's good enough that God said, do it, so I'm going to do it. Uh, and I still believe that, by the way. But, but here it's focused and narrowed down. God said this, so you do this. And I think that that has a way, that is often talked about as sound doctrine or, you know, that's the right way to do it. But it's also uh, um, anemic. That is, it doesn't give you a fuller vision of what's going on here. What, what is the theology that lies behind? Why is God calling us into this? Why is, why is baptism so important in this faith community? What is it that God is doing? Why is God calling us into that? What is it about the baptism of Jesus? So, that, For example, um, it's not just kind of doctrine. It's rather embodying the gospel, that obedience is embodying the gospel. It's following Jesus. So I I tell this story about um, this often happened in my undergraduate classes at Lipscomb, that we'd have a discussion of baptism and I'd have a lot of, uh, you know, just dependent on the class. But I'd have a a significant number of people who would say, well, I haven't been baptized. You know, I just haven't thought of it as that important. And uh, maybe it's something I'll do later on. And, you know. You know, something like that. Or even somebody with a negative understanding like, oh, that's that's works righteousness. I'm not going to do that. And my response is not say, "Okay, let's go get this verse and let's let's show you how wrong you are. You know, my my question was, "Okay, who are you? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Well, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And you follow Jesus. Yeah. And you want to follow Jesus and everything. Yeah. You know, then follow Jesus into the water. And look what happened to Jesus in the water. Look look, look the, the theology that is present in the baptism of Jesus. And that's the significance of this event, not only for him, but for us. And we participate in the baptism of Jesus when we are baptized. And so it's rooted Christologically. It's rooted in the, the work of God in that moment not in just some abstract command with obedience to it. And that's that's kind of unfair to say it exactly like that. But I'm trying to draw a contrast here. Um, but when you're asked a question of doctrine and practice, it seems to me the two go together. That doctrine is best expressed when it is embodied practice. That is, it is the practice of the gospel that's, how those two unite, it seems to me.
0: Yeah, it seems to take us back to the heart of the matter in each of these teachings and this relationship with God, rather than just an external set of rules or rituals that somehow make us more right with Him. I think that resonates with a lot of people, John Mark. And, and you know, I always wonder with authors, as you write, you know, how feedback comes to you. Um, and I know you'll have your critics, and you've been able to withstand that through the years because you've you written a lot and spoken a lot. What have been, you know, with, with a book like this, this, this is a book, again, that I just, I hope gets in a lot of people's hands and gets well read in our movement. What are, what are some of the just gratifying things that you've experienced from feedback after releasing this book? What are some of the things you hear that says, wow, that was worth the effort?
2: Well, thanks for asking that question. Um, I think um, I hear, this is what I hear a lot. Oh, you told my story. You, this is this was my journey as well. I grew up in this system and it, and there came a point when it didn't make sense to me and I didn't know how to coherently put it together. And you gave me language to describe this. And you gave me a way of seeing, seeing it. In a gentle way, seeing it in a, a appreciative way, but also recognizing its deficiencies, and a path to explore scripture in a different way, a more um, more theological way, more a way that that focuses more on the grand story than on um, trying to create a, a blueprint out of it. So I hear that a lot. That it's. Um, I also hear that um, um, you know there was always this criticism. There is nothing else besides blueprint patternism, and you use commands, examples, and necessary inferences to to generate the blueprint, and that that's the only way you can read the Bible. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of way, a lot of um, a sense that I didn't, I wasn't able to see another way because I I was so encased in this way, I was cocooned in this way, and so I couldn't see another way. And I hear a lot from people that they were they appreciated the book because it helped them to see that there is another way. That commands, examples, and inferences are not bad things. Those are good things. They are good. Uh, it's just the way we were using them that's the problem. We use them to try to create a blueprint uh, in the traditional model, whereas in the theological model, you use them to see, see them as forms of Pointers. They are pointers to God. They are pointers to who God is, and we use them in order to understand who God is, uh, and that that's the theological use of them. So it's not a rejection of commands, examples, and differences. It's rather how the how that strategy uh, functions within the system that that it's a part of, and in the blueprint system, it had a way of of uh, generating. Uh, specifics so that you had to make a decision. Is this a generic command or is this a specific command? Is this an exclusive command or does this include other things? What is the difference between the expediency and what is necessary? Uh, and we had to make all those kind of decisions, which is a hermeneutics. You know, that's, that's that middle step. And we had to make all those kind of decisions um, because of the system we had imposed of what we're looking for. We're looking for a particular thing. So, when I'm looking for that particular thing, here's how I do it. And so we had to create all kinds of rules about general and specific uh, coordinates, um, uh, you know, all kinds of rules about how to do this, which I described in the book. In contrast to looking at a command, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's commanded five times, by the way, more than the Lord's Supper is. But Greek holding another with a you know with a kiss with a holy kiss. So what do we do with that? Do we actually practice it? No, kiss we translate
1: everybody.
2: it. Yeah, <laughs> a holy kiss, right? Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, so we translate it into something culturally appropriate, and we understand the point of it is welcoming each other. It's a sign of peace with each other, and so we do the kiss of peace. You know, we do the pass of peace before we take the Lord's Supper, kind of in some traditions, right? So we recognize what's going on is a theological point, not reproducing exactly what they did. And that's the big difference. In the blueprint model, you're looking for something to specifically and exactly reproduce. Whereas in the theological approach, you're looking for the heart of God. You're looking for uh, the story of God and what God is doing and what's transformative, how to embody the gospel. That becomes the key point.
1: I love how um, how you say the, because we're not trying to create first century Christianity. So if we only read it in the blueprint pattern, then we're reading it through the lens of a first century culture, which ours is definitely not that. And so we miss the richness of greet each other with the Holy kiss. When we don't look at it from the theological perspective of it, of it means to welcome, like, mm. you know, so, some people just dismiss it altogether because of course we're not going to do that in this day and age. But so I love the, the way of kind of the way that theological um, interpretation helps us contextualize for today, like yeah. how we can be more transformed in the likeness of Jesus in our particular moment in tom
2: yeah i think that's a good point and i appreciate you elaborating that uh, because i think it goes to the heart of what happens in a blueprint model is you have to make a decision about okay is that part of the blueprint or is that just a cultural thing is that part of the blueprint or is that just a circumstance you know everybody has to make those decisions but the blueprint forces you to um Uh, Make that decision and identify exactly what is essential. And if you don't, then what you'll do is reproduce first century culture. Uh, Women will be wearing head coverings. We'll greet each other with a holy kiss. Paul would not want any women to wear gold. We we would not uh, support widows under 60. You know, if you're going to reproduce, then you're in danger of reproducing first century culture. What we want to do is understand the mystery of Christ, it seems to me. And when we understand the mystery of Christ, then we will know how to, we will then discern how to embody that mystery in the present culture. Just for example, slavery. I mean, if you want to reproduce, then you're going to have to reproduce slavery, right? Or at least you're not going to oppose slavery if you're just reproducing. But if you have a theological understanding, you you see in Galatians 3.28 that Paul Paul sees beyond slave and free, right? The enslaved people and, and the free people. He sees beyond that, I think, in the story of Philemon. So there's something theological going on there that, that Paul is at work to bring into being as a part of new creation. And, and that's we don't want to reproduce first century culture. We want to transform it and become the body of Christ in the present.
0: Well, the book is Searching for the Pattern. The author is John Mark Hicks. The uh, the subtitle is My Journey in Interpreting the Bible. And And for those of you that have uh, maybe been listening or reading uh, from John Mark Hicks through the years, you've probably been on this journey with him as you've seen it reflected in his teaching, as he himself has uh, transformed the way he's looked at scripture. And, and this is a, a little bit, biography in some ways, as well as in in instructive. So John Mark Hicks, we we so appreciate your being with us. We're going to have you come back for another, uh, our next podcast, or we're going to continue this discussion. I want to say again, um, I think this is a very important book that needs a wide reading among uh, restoration people, people in churches of Christ, Christian churches, um, disciples, international churches of Christ. We'd all be blessed to go on this journey with John Mark Hicks in this book and and really get at the heart of how to read Scripture well that's faithful to the way God intended. Um, so thank you for being with us. By the way, the book is self-published. You won't find a publisher. If you go Google it, uh, just look for the title and the name John Mark Hicks. You'll find it in other books he's written. So John Mark, thank for thank you for being with us. Thank and you.
2: I'm very, very happy to be
0: here. Yep. For another round uh, next week. Oh, absolutely. All right. Tina, good to be back with you.
1: You as well. I look forward to uh, hearing and seeing what the next podcast uh, brings. Thanks, all John Mark.
0: All, all right. Thank you, our, Tina. Our theme is unity starts with a cup of coffee. Let me encourage you to go out and get a cup of coffee and get with another believer, perhaps, that you don't know or... Uh, maybe somebody in another church family, and just start to build that kind of conversation that can lead to dialogue and conversation and fellowship. Join with us next time. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this Ministry of Reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless, and remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.